evening. I'm Sandra Peart, Dean of the Jepson School of Leadership Studies, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to this evening's inaugural event in the 2021-22 Jepson Leadership Forum. Postponed a year because of the pandemic, we're grateful and excited to present the series, Moving People, the Perils and Promise of Nationalism, a topic that could not be more timely. Although tonight's presentation is virtual, we hope to return to in-person events in the near future. Stay tuned. The Jepson Leadership Forum is an annual series of programs featuring speakers who explore leadership as it relates to specific themes such as healthcare, the rise of digital media, or immigration. And this year, we will discuss the moral, ethical, and legal implications of global migration and asylum. We will explore how leaders and communities navigate the economic, social, and cultural transformations of a world with and without borders and walls. As a Canadian living in the United States, one who was unable to visit my home country for more than 20 months during this pandemic, I take a special interest in this topic. Our leadership studies faculty helped determine the themes and identify speakers for the annual lecture series. Tonight, I'd like to thank Dr. Peter Kaufman, Professor and George Matthews and Virginia Brinkley, Maudlin Chair in Leadership Studies for his clear vision and leadership. I'd also like to recognize University of Richmond President Kevin Halleck and thank him for joining us this evening. Dr. Halleck is the university's 11th president, and we welcome him and his wife, Tina, as well as their rescue dogs, Mabel and Matilda, to the Spider family. And now last but not least, please join me in welcoming Jepson alumna, Maureen Usman, who joins us from New York City. She will introduce our speaker this evening. A member of the class of 2020, Maureen majored in leadership studies and economics, a terrific combination. She was deeply involved in Jepson's student government as, uh, work while at the University of Richmond, and she also served as a mentor to Spanish-speaking immigrants as part of Dr. Kaufman's Scholars Latino Initiative, a nonprofit focused on helping Latinx students access a college education. With the Richmond Scholars Enrichment Grant, Maureen traveled to Pakistan her senior year to conduct research with the Human Rights Commission of Pakistan. That research focused on policy suggestions to improve educational and healthcare outcomes for Afghan refugees in Pakistan. A Fulbright grant recipient, she departs this month for Taiwan, where she will teach English to third through sixth graders on one of the Kinmen Islands. Please join me in welcoming Maureen virtually back to the University of Richmond. Thank you, Dean Peart. Um, I'm very honored to be here tonight. Uh, Zaid Rad Al-Hussein of Jordan is the Perry World House Professor of Practice of Law and Human Rights at the University of Pennsylvania Cary Law School. He is also President and CEO of the International Peace Institute, an independent nonprofit think tank dedicated to promoting peace, security, and sustainable development. Known for his outspoken criticism of the fascism, religious radicalism, and threats to civil liberties growing globally, 
Zayed is a powerful advocate for human rights and open societies. His career as a Jordanian diplomat included stints as his country's permanent representative to the UN and ambassador to the United States. From 2014 to 2018, he served as the UN's High Commissioner for Human Rights. He also served on the UN Security Council and was a configuration chair for the UN Peacebuilding Commission. While serving as an advisor for the UN Secretary General Kofi Annan, he wrote the comprehensive strategy for the elimination of sexual exploitation and abuse in UN peacekeeping operations. Zaid played a central role in the 2002 establishment of the International Criminal Court, chairing the negotiations over the elements of individual offenses amounting to genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes. He has also represented his country twice before the International Court of Justice. Early in his career, he served as a UN peacekeeper in the former Yugoslavia. Zaid holds a PhD from Cambridge University. In 2019, he joined the Elders, an independent group founded by Nelson Mandela and comprising global leaders working together for peace, justice, and human rights. Please join me in welcoming Zaid Rav Al Hussein. Well, thank you, Maureen, for that most kind and generous welcome. Uh, Pre President Halleck, uh, Dean, Dean Peart, uh, Professor Kaufman, I'm honored to be presenting this lecture on the promise of global human rights before you, the distinguished faculty and the students at the University of Richmond to kick off a series of lectures uh, on at the Jepson School uh, on moving people, the perils and promise of nationalism. Uh, now, I've been called many things in my life, but uh, Marine, this is the first time I've been referred to as a fighter of fascism. And it's quite a change for me. Uh, when she was 15, my daughter entered our kitchen here from uh, where I speak now uh, on her way to school and glancing at me, she asked, so how long will you remain this gray, dull UN bureaucrat? That's pretty harsh, no? So fascist fighter has a little bit more panache to it. Uh, Dean Peart, you may need to invite me again. Just over a century ago, on the 20th of July, 1920 to be exact, in Damascus, Syria, a young man drove his vehicle into a throng of people who had taken to the streets, incensed by their king's decision earlier in the day to surrender to an invading French army. Even when a military clash with the French spelt annihilation for the Syrian soldiers, the protesters felt the king's capitulation amounted to treason. And what began as a protest mainly by the soldiers themselves grew to become a small rebellion with exchanges of gunfire between the police and the rebels escalating throughout much of the day. A jail had also been seized and the prisoners released, and they also joined the growing uprising. The young man stopped his vehicle, picked up his machine gun, and fired at the crowd. Pandemonium ensued and people scattered in all directions. By midnight, calm had returned. The rebellion had been put down. But two, or sorry, 50 to 200 people lay in the streets of Damascus, 
uh, a horrific outcome to the day's events. Now, why should this matter uh, just over 100 years later? If you are interested in the contemporary Arab world and Syria in particular, it is a slice of history that is of some importance and the listener is encouraged to, to read Elizabeth Thompson's excellent book and starkly entitled, How the West Stole Democracy from the Arabs. And not much ambiguity there. My reason for mentioning this story is altogether different. You see, the young man wielding the machine gun was my grandfather and namesake, the brother of the king. Now, I would like to believe he did not kill anyone, let alone unarmed civilians, that he fired over their heads, uh, that he was defending his brother and himself. After all, no one in my family has ever known about it until very recently, that is, not even by way of whispers, which given the bloodiness of the day is surprising. Why, I ask myself, wasn't there a call at the time for his prosecution? He was about to be kicked out of the country and certainly had he shot unarmed civilians, he would have deserved it. Moreover, throughout his life and from most accounts, he was known to be a gentle, modest, kind man. Even more peculiar, when I, in my capacity as the UN Human Rights Chief, berated the Syrian government repeatedly and publicly between 2014 and 2018 for their callous actions against civilians, why didn't the government allude to my grandfather's action? It would have been a delicious moment for Bashar al-Assad. Almost uh, 40 years later, in 1958, July 1958, my grandfather's entire family was seized by rebels, this time in Baghdad. No one fired back and the family was destroyed. One was even dismembered and dragged through the streets behind a car. My grandparents and my father survived because they were not in Baghdad at the time, but they were made stateless overnight. How tempting it is for me to think in the light of this that my grandfather's actions in 1920 were somehow justified, again, a matter of self-defense. Would I not then be rationalizing, perhaps desperately, a more comfortable outcome for myself? It is difficult, after all, for me or for anyone to cope with the suffering brought on by the actions of an ancestor, let alone a recent one. Even if I were to discover my grandfather had not killed anyone that July in Damascus, his family in earlier periods did maintain slaves. Am I ashamed by that fact? How could I not be ashamed? But I ought not also feel guilty about it or made to feel guilty. In law, guilt is not transferable generationally. It does not travel to those who are innocent of any serious wrongdoing, simply because of some family connection. 
the children of a murderer are not themselves murderers. There are those who attack crit critical race theory, for example, arguing that they do so because they're made to feel guilty for the sins of their forebears. While I believe there is more to their rejection of CRT than that, if there is indeed such an attempt to make them feel personally guilty, that is also unwise. What is inescapable is that we all have a duty to learn from the past, to provide remedy wherever we can, and pledge ourselves never to see those actions repeated. All of us, if we look back far enough in our family histories, will come across accomplishments, big or small, to admire, and most probably demons to recognize, however painful those are. Even if we try to lead good lives, our family trees will very likely contain in among the branches some shameful behavior. Humility should then flow easily from us, given that this residue of saints and sinners is spread across our DNA, or as the poet Hafiz warns us in his 10,000 Idiots. It is always a danger to aspirants on the path when they begin to believe and act as if the 10,000 idiots who so long ruled and lived inside have all packed their bags or skipped town and died. When looking at the global human rights picture today, it is almost impossible to disentangle the laws relating to rights from their historical context and to ignore the failure of almost all countries to properly reckon with their pasts. I always thought how easy it would be for a Sudanese official representing Omar Hassan and Bashir when Bashir was still in power in Sudan to deflect the pressure being exerted on Sudan by European states shocked by Darfur. All they would have to say is, have you reflected your own country's complicity in the Holocaust in your national curriculum? Because few have. The Institute for Historical Justice and Reconciliation in The Hague, the IHJR, has explored how best to sort out the competing narratives bedeviling practically every country and which chauvinistic populists will often exploit against those with a differing narrative. I saw this firsthand as a civilian peacekeeper in the former Yugoslavia in mid-1990 or in the mid-1990s. The Institute's uh, philosophy is elegant identify a divided community within a country or two countries divided by a narrative. Assemble a small group of historians from either side, have them agree on a contested period and a methodology, and have them attempt as best they can to stitch together a common narrative and where there are divergences, create parallel narratives. For a while, I served on an advisory board for the Institute or to the Institute, and projects were launched relating to Uganda, Kenya, Ireland, Northern Ireland, Turkey, Armenia, Israel, Palestine. There was even 
an exploratory discussion held between Japan and China. Despite some promising early results, the IHJR's work unfortunately never emerged from being a boutique activity to becoming mainstream. The UN in particular has failed to grasp the critical importance of confronting contested histories. There again, the UN is only a reflection of the world out there for better or for worse and can only make a difference around the margins. Sadly, it is not making that difference now and out there shabby political merchants we call populists or chauvinistic nationalists still stir the narratives spreading their poison, much of it we commonly refer to as xenophobia. They and others not thinking this through thoroughly enough will speak of a world still confronting a refugee or a migration crisis, similar to that which we see along the southern US border. This view is imprecise or inexact. Yes, there is a crisis, it is not an immigration crisis, however, it is a xenophobia crisis, a crisis of intolerance, and then ultimately discrimination. It is worth noting that only 5% of the global population is on the move for whatever reason. The movement itself is therefore not a crisis. Fear of the other is one requiring a much deeper exploration of the human psyche than is the case thus far. Regrettably, the international community still believes peace building in the wake of violence and conflict is best achieved by throwing cement at the problem, rebuild the roads, the bridges, train security officials, police, and hope that reconciliation comes about by convening meetings. All the antagonisms existing within the mental space are left unaddressed, Indeed, at one stage in the Bosnian war, someone was heard to quip, we're not in need of peacekeepers as much as we are in need of therapists, thousands of them. In January 2014, I presided over the UN Security Council representing my country, Jordan, and early on proposed a debate on the role of memory in the search for permanent peace using that first month of the year in which we would commemorate the centenary of World War I as a pivot for the public exchange. I also suggested inviting the historian Margaret Macmillan to lead off the council's discussion. The Russians objected immediately. Vitaly Cherkin, the Russian ambassador at the time, now sadly deceased, said there would be no focus on World War I in the Security Council. Uh, apparently, it was still too fresh for him. All the more reason uh, for us to discuss it, I reasoned. In the end, though, he would not budge, and Council rules meant I had to yield on Macmillan. The ensuing debate was still passionate. The only time I saw the two Koreas and China agreeing on something, the absurdity of Japan's sanitizing of its imperial history. A Japanese friend later said to me, while the Chinese were happy to raise Nanjing 1937 to 1938, would they ever openly discuss the crimes committed 
in the name of the Cultural Revolution. Touche. The commonly held view of history being an endless debate is also most unfortunate and frankly quite misplaced. No one disputes the broader sequence of events that have shaped humanity's past and particularly its recent past. No one with any credibility that is would say that Franz Ferdinand was shot on the 29th of June 1914 or that World War I began on the 2nd of September 1939, both dates being wrong by a day. What historians will often contest are motivations of the individual actors caught up in the unfolding sequence of events or the precise sequence itself. Yet debates over details must not then be viewed as providing us with a justification for doubting or nullifying our understanding of the past. The discussion held in the UN that January in 2014 was never revisited. The UN, alas, is still content to work with what is more visible and more superficial. But that could change, which brings me to the US today. The country is still feeling its way in the aftermath of the killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Philando Castile, and Michael Brown. And the anger that followed their shootings remains palpable. The 2020 marches, including the solidarity protests, were also deeply inspiring. David uh, Kay of UC Irvine has argued the US should now join the outstanding international human rights treaties and create its own national human rights commission, i.e. upgrading its civil rights commission. For those who do not know this, for the most part, the US lies outside the international human rights framework. Now, the United States has been a member of the UN Human Rights Council, which is made, of, made up of 47 member states and the commission before it, and has remained committed to the Universal Periodic Review, the UN's peer review system on human rights, despite the loud denunciations of the Trump administration. However, the US has not given legal effect to its joining or its accession to the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights or acceded to the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights or indeed five of the nine other core human rights treaties. Consequently, human rights are understood in the US more as a matter of constitutional law and the US Bill of Rights and the global human rights system remains largely unappreciated. Indeed, when people in the US hear the terms UN and human rights together, many will acknowledge they have heard of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and Eleanor Roosevelt. Some may be uh, able to even cite one or two of the listed articles, but seldom more than that. This is not the case when human rights are referred to in their narrower sense, civil rights, women's rights or child rights then it becomes all the more recognizable because those frames are closely connected to grassroots social movements and are therefore better understood. Yet each one of those individual frames 
will also ultimately rely on the UN's human rights system for their legal clarity and because of their universal or worldwide applicability, a system which is itself centered on those nine core human rights treaties, all of which taken together, when taken together, identify individual rights along with the prohibitions. These rights are connected through a series of mechanisms, beginning with committees and experts centered in Geneva, Switzerland, to regional commissions, and then within countries, national independent human rights institutions, and most crucially of all, frontline civil society. It is at this furthermost point in the chain where courage often exists in abundance. Sadly, most colleges and universities in the US have not created human rights centers. And as I have just said, those two words, human rights, hardly ever figure across broad swathes of academic work or are rarely found in business literature. You would be forgiven for thinking human rights are unimportant or weak, simply not worth studying. Are they weak? If so, why then would a despot, as is apparent in too many parts of the world, be so affected by the lone voice of a dissident? They can, and often do, feel compelled to silence it by imprisoning them, poisoning them, shooting them, or hanging them. Is it not because the so-called leader's own legitimacy, the legitimacy of their power, is being called into question, often with some justification? And can we not all agree there's nothing more powerful than when an inconvenient truth comes from a single courageous voice? Is that not something we all admire, a voice that is so easily willing to overcome the first of human instincts, personal survival, for the sake of defending a principle which has relevance to all humanity? Does that not ring a religious bell? Human rights are not weak. They are formidable, especially when wielded properly. And they're a critical influence too. For a while, I've been concerned how our educational systems, when stressing technical competency, seem to do so to the exclusion of something deeper, a moral component, a guide. Of course, whether it's in STEM, the social sciences, finance, or engineering, we need students who are well-equipped to ease themselves into their respective sectors of the labor market. Over that, there is little room for argument. But high intelligence and technical knowledge on their own are insufficient insulators against bad outcomes. In Gustav Gilbert's book, The Nuremberg Diary, Gilbert uh, was the American psychologist working with the US prosecutorial team at the Nuremberg trials. The writer observed, and I quote, that, most, uh, that the most successful men in any sphere of human activity, whether it be politics, industry, militarism, or crime, are apt to be above average intelligence, end quote. And he reveals how Schacht Sis Enkart, Goering, Donitz, Van Papen, Rader, Frank, Fritsch, von Sirach, 
all had IQs between 130 and 143. And it's not just a matter of raw intelligence. Eight out of the 15 attending the Wannsee conference in January 1942 to detail the final solution held doctorates. They were far from being uneducated. Those Nazis who actually led the killers were often highly educated too. The first commandant of the Treblinka death camp, Ernfried Eber, had two advanced degrees. Nine of, out of 17 leaders of the death squad Einsatzgruppen A, responsible for the most appalling crimes, had doctorates. The commander of Einsatzgruppen C, Otto Rasch, even held two doctorates. Now, I may be resorting to extreme examples in proving my point, but generally speaking, high intelligence and formal levels of education will not on their own save us in those moments when we need most to be saved. There must be something else in us, uh, a deeper moral tug, and I would also argue an understanding of the universal rights discourse and the framework. So by all means, be technically gifted in whatever field you choose, but know your universal rights and feel for your conscience too. Let it be a constant source of suggestion and never unhitch your technical abilities from it. So I agree with David Kay, the US should join the outstanding international human rights treaties. Uh, but I have argued the US does also need to integrate a deeper understanding of international human rights into its educational curriculum. Most important of all, I believe the US also needs to settle its historical narrative as a matter of national urgency. That the US is beset by a criminal justice system that in many parts of the country has often or has become rotten and too militarized or by stark social and income inequalities and wide discrepancies when it comes to housing, health, education and employment opportunities is now widely accepted. Unfortunately, the US also remains trapped in its world of untethering histories, with too many Americans seemingly in disagreement over what is, after all, a common past. It may well be the case many American whites feel alienated, economically abandoned, believing themselves to be the victims of a hardline, left-leaning, elitist America, and only because they are more religiously minded or conservative. Questions of tolerance and intolerance are always more complicated than when first meets the eye. Historically, however, it is also undeniable that white individuals not only designed, but subsequently presided over the enforcement of America's long-lasting structural discriminations. And in most parts of the country today, whites remain more privileged than others. Yet this last point is too quickly dismissed by those who remain wedded, mind you, to the idea America emerged from one factory only, the white mind. And it, it is now white people, the descendants of the founding fathers, who are now being uh, threatened existentially that people of color who by their toil and colossal suffering accounted for the extraordinary revenues wrought from cotton production in the first 60 years following independence, 
that they also built this country seems to be too easily dismissed. But how does one change that to leave it to an unstructured or unofficial dialogue among historians or to a piecemeal taking down of statue, statues is to my mind too tenuous and insufficient given the country remains fixed on a dangerous trajectory. I therefore suggest most humbly that in tandem with addressing the racial biases of the criminal justice system, a national commission on race, on history and race be created, a unique commission invested with the power to hold hearings and propose amendments to the law. It ought to pick up where the Kerner Commission left off in 1968 and would at the outset focus exclusively on the uh, African-American experience, which is sui generis, unique, and later weave in the historic suffering of other non-white communities in America, the First Nations, the Mexicans, the Chinese, and the Japanese. A settled script must finally make itself available in a form where it will be acceptable, accepted by most, if not all, Americans. One arrived at without the perception that political prejudice or bias had a role in its shaping. Owen Pell of the Auschwitz Institute advises, and I agree, that while a nationally recognized and widely admired figure should lead any future National Commission on History and Race, its members ought to be the current or former archivists of the Library of Congress, the National Archives, the National Museum on African American History and Culture, the National Museum of the American Indian, and so on, so as not to be viewed as politically jaundiced. Once agreed to by the Commission, the newly arrived at national narrative, supported by all but the most extreme political extremes, would arm state and local officials and school boards with the right information on how to reflect race accurately in the educational curricula across the country. The first time I heard a compelling argument on the need for reckoning came from the New York Times columnist, Roger Cohen, 20 years ago, when he was reflecting on the Bosnian war. Without a national reckoning, proper reconciliation becomes next to impossible. The United States has, in the wake of George Floyd, revealed itself to the world. There is now a great opportunity for the US to accomplish what most countries cannot do, set a new standard on memory and reconciliation. It is all a matter of moral consistency and credibility. There is little credibility without moral con consistency and confronting one's own record is after all what integrity is all about. On the 12th of October, 1936, on a stage at the University of Salamanca, the rector of the university, Miguel de Unamuno, personified these traits. Although uh, for the sake of full disclosure, this version has also been disputed. Uh, speaking at a ceremony marking a Spanish festival, he walked up to the lectern and stood in front of General Milan Astray, the nationalist commander and founder of the Foreign Legion, 
and standing before Franco's wife in a hall filled with the supporters of the nationalist cause, including the phalanges with their fascist salutes and their shouts of Viva la Muerta, he opened his account with destiny. By that stage in the Spanish Civil War, Unamuno was sickened by the violence perpetrated by both sides. Quietly, he uttered, I am unable to stay silent. Placing his life in the most extreme danger, he then went on to criticize Astray openly, noting how it pained Unamuno to think the latter would, and I quote, dictate the pattern of mass psychology. You will win, he conceded, because you have more than enough brute force, but you will not convince. To persuade, you would need what you lack, reason and right in your struggle, end quote. Astray began to shout, Viva la Muerta! Bedlam set in, and Astray's bodyguard raised his machine gun and pointed it at Unamuno. Only the intervention of Franco's wife saved the rector. Today, Spain is a democracy. Interestingly, Unamuno was not a liberal. He identified more with a religious conservatism, but was willing to speak critically to the nationalists at the risk of losing his own life. Only those ind individual leaders, communities, and countries willing to confront their own records, their own past, and stand up for the rights of all without harming anyone else will be viewed by the rest of us as being properly suited to guide humanity to a more just and peaceful experience. Will the United States be that example and leader? An opportunity still beckons. I thank you for your attention. Thank you so much, Said. Uh, you've given us uh, days and days and years worth of um, remarks to think about and mull over. Uh, I have a number of questions that I've jotted down uh, throughout your talk. We do have some, um, some questions that were submitted as participants registered for the event, and I would like uh, to, to, for us to discuss some of those. But I'm going to use my um, prerogative as the dean of the school and, and um, your sort of partner in this evening's uh, event um, to just ask a few questions um, in advance of those. Uh, so the first is, you mentioned um, that we're, we're not in a crisis of migration so much as a crisis of xenophobia. Um, and I, I think that's, that's largely true. Um, and I guess, so then you said fear of the other is, has risen. And I believe that seems to be true just from you know, reading the news. I'm, I'm an outsider to this. Um, uh, but I wonder if you can comment on why that's happened, if it's true that we haven't seen huge um, changes in migration patterns uh, over the last few decades. Why have we seen this crisis of xenophobia? Well, it, 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 it's a great question. I, when you read uh, the pieces in the news media or listen to pundits, 
one would mistakenly believe somehow that maybe 10% of the global population is moving. These right. are people in search of a better life, people who have been forced to leave their homes by dint of persecution or war. And when you say, no, 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 it's less than 5%, you know, 95% of the global population is not moving. It's not, yeah. So is it so hard for us to believe because we are a migratory species that only 5% is moving? Wouldn't that be normal? That's entirely normal. So then what is the the problem? And uh, the problem is that if you're a xenophobe, whether it's one foreigner or stranger living next to you or 50 or 200 it makes no real difference even one is enough right and so the question is why then do we cast it in those terms um and why not take a more humane view of things um when i was uh, un high commissioner i was also told by experts that in, in the future much of the migration that we were going to see it's south-south, not south-north. But if you're a populist, it yields enormous political dividends for you to hurl abuse at someone who is different or someone who is different from you. And, uh, and it works, unfortunately. And you get third-rate politicians suddenly being elected when their skill set is limited and, uh, and the damage they cause is quite considerable. Uh, so I think we have to be careful the way that we you know, think about these issues. Um, uh, the other point is that, you know, we, we really haven't worked out uh, because no country has really solved or sorted out its racism issues. And almost every country is plagued by this blight. Yeah. And uh, I think most younger people and including the, you know, the students at the University of Richmond just simply can't understand how we oldies make such a big deal out of all of this. You know, who, who really cares about these most minute differences in the human physical form? I mean, it's sort of insane, really, yes. you know, I, that we could, we could become like this. I mean, you know, so smart as a, as a species and so stupid at the same time, you know, that we can't overcome all of this. And, um, you know, shame on us, really, us, our generations. Thank you. That's that's terrific. Uh, Marine is going to enter the Zoom room and make herself visible, and she has a question for you as well. Yes, thank you. Um, so earlier in your presentation, you had said something about um, guilt not being transferable throughout generations. Yeah. And so I was really intrigued by that and wondering, so then at this point in time, who is, do you think, the most primarily responsible for suffering that people have due to remnants of the past? Is it civil societies? Is it government? Or is it everyday citizens? Because I know earlier you also said that human rights can seem inaccessible. So just in general, who do you believe is the most responsible for that suffering? Well, we, we all have a responsibility to ensure that it never happens. I mean, we all need to pledge ourselves to that. Um, but, uh, you know, I remember we had a panel at the UN once, uh, which was devoted to the death penalty, or really, really seeing the end of the death penalty. We had a, an executioner on the panel. We had someone who had been on death row for uh, something like 22 years. And uh, we had uh, experts who spoke to, including, I think, in the audience, 
members of a family or belonging to an executed person. In the course of the discussion, it became apparent that the offspring of someone executed um, suffer throughout their entire lives. And no one can make an argument that the child of a miscreant or a criminal deserves to have their life destroyed like that. So guilt is not transferable from, from parent to child. Uh, and similarly, across generations, it, we can't move in that direction. What we can do is recognize the terrible wrongdoings of the past and then find uh, a, a, a sort of intelligent way by which we can handle them, recognizing the full enormity and scope of human suffering, and then devote ourselves to seeing that people who have, are still affected, as I said, where reparations can be paid, they need to be paid. The utmost needs to be devoted to the issue. But guilt itself, we have to be very careful about this issue. I wonder if I could um, jump in and ask one more question, which has to do with the National Commission that you talked about, National Commission on Peace. So a really interesting idea, big institutional change. Um, but I guess my what how I might uh, what I might ask is you know, how how would will we get traction for such an idea um, given um, you know the IHJR hasn't really you know been able to affect this sort of institutional change. What are your, what are your thoughts on you know where to go with this idea? Yes, it is hard, right, and that's why we have to do it. Right. Um, the US prides itself in being a leader in, in so many respects, and yet it has enormous problems that it confronts. And um, the Kerner Commission did some good work, but uh, it wasn't really furthered uh, in most countries. I mean, if you look at the South African example, there was the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. There was also the Tutu Commission, the Historical Commission. And, um, and I think it played an important role. Um, unless you begin to settle the, you know, most of the divergent narratives, they lay there as sort of, they lie there as almost dry gunpowder waiting for some populace to just start, <laughs> start whipping it up again. Um, so I, I think that there is a, a path to take. Uh, lots of people will say it will never work. Of course, uh, um, you should never say never is, uh, you know, never. <laughs> never is never. You you just don't know unless you try. And I think there is a path for the US to largely settle this um, so that it doesn't move in the directions that we see currently in the country. You also talked about um, a, a deeper moral tug. So, you know, on the one hand, you've got this sort of institutional solution, but also this more uh, ethical notion or moral notion. Um, uh, I guess I, I would ask, um, uh, what what role do you see? This is you know me now as dean of the Jepson School. Thinking, what role would you see for higher education for universities and colleges then to further the the efforts that you're thinking about? Yeah, so I just came off uh, a trip where I took part in a conference on AI and democracy, and um, it was quite frightening. Uh, and there is there are some really good attempts to create within 
the programming community within the computer science um, community a deeper sense of not just ethics, but what the applicable law demands. And uh, we all want to see the benefits of technology, uh, but we don't want to see it hastening our destruction as well. I mean, it's just fundamentally <laughs> ridiculous to imagine that we would want something like this. So at the very earliest stages, the, these brilliant scientists need to be better equipped. Uh, it has become commonplace to find law centers be the host for human rights sort of centers or law faculties to be the human centers for it. but they need not always be there they could be in business schools and engineering schools in medical schools and so forth uh, the more we're aware of the rights agenda that we all really enjoy uh, that we all ought to enjoy uh, the better it is and we remember uh, andre sakharov uh, over the last year we've been spending a lot of time talking about him and it's a brilliant nuclear physicist who understood fully that even if he had access and privileges, which no other scientists had in the Soviet Union, he was still trapped. He could, he could not enjoy fundamental, his fundamental freedoms in a way that he believed marked him as a human being. And so he rebelled and he spoke out. Yeah? And so uh, scientists and others need not be silent about these issues. Um, and we can, we, and I think if, if we can, we can expand the reach of students to, um, to human rights, training, learning, they may still pursue very uh, successful careers along other trajectories, but to also have that grounding is, I think, hugely important for them. Thank you. That's terrific. Uh, Irene, if you yeah, have no further questions, I'm going to move to the submitted questions. I think it'd be good to give our participants a chance to, to weigh in. So these were questions submitted before as, as our participants registered. And um, I have first, how do we move collectively toward the promise of global human rights when there's disagreement about what human rights are? Yes. I. I I think, I mean, it's a, it's a question that's often raised, yes. and uh, there is a human rights response to it. And I, I won't claim that this comes from me because I pinched it from someone, someone else. And the person I pinched it actually is the EU ambassador in Washington now. So if anyone wants to credit the, the author, it's uh, Stavros Lambrinidis. But uh, Stavros used to be the um, human rights representative for the European Union. And we were talking once and he said, you know, when you travel around the world and you meet the victims of the most horrific abuses, you never hear from them that somehow, you know, this is acceptable, that there's social mores, that there are cultural practices which sort of allow for this. You never hear it from the victims or their families, but you often hear it from the governments who sort of provide cover for these practices or the perpetrators themselves, then they will argue that this is, this is tradition, this is cultural practice, this is, you know, so I, I just don't buy it. Uh, you know, you, when you are battered, and this is what Stavros said, and I thought it was very powerful, when you're battered, whether you're, you're living in Australia, Sweden, you know, Jordan or Brazil, you know you're being battered. And so rights are pretty much universal. Yes. And so I don't, I think it's a it's false argument, this, um, and, but it's often used by those who try and justify 
uh, repressive measures or authoritarian tendencies. Thank you. I think you are a fighter, as <laughs> you're, you said at the outset, uh, for, uh, against totalitarianism and so on. Thank you. Um, how does populism in the US affect our global humanitarian efforts? You've touched on this a little bit, but perhaps you could expand. Yeah, I, I think it was, uh, it was extremely troubling. Um, I, I think what's what's most difficult for many of us who are not American, who admire the US tremendously, though, who've spent and were lucky to spend enough time as students in the US, is that one grew up in a in a context, at least I did, where rote learning was the norm. We memorized, I mean, it was all memory based. And even at an early age, one appreciated that somehow in the US they were different. The Americans were critically minded. You were taught to debate. There was something called the Socratic method. You never really received wisdom without testing it, poking at it. And, and that ultimately through this sort of density of critical thought emerged some amazing things. And it was always, this is how we viewed the US. And then um, to see how, if I could be so blunt, how gullible people are to news which is so manifestly not true. Uh, it's not even deep fakes we're talking about. And it says something, and it's not perhaps just limited to the US. And I, I may sound uh, horribly elitist for saying this, you know, but people are unbelievably gullible. And why? You know, we need to be doubtful of everything. We need to use our critical faculties. But we don't completely tip reality on its head and believe what is manifestly untrue without any subjecting it to context or contextual contextual sort of circumstances in the background, uh, and then and then not believe what is absolutely within the frame and realm of possibility. I mean, I think that's the sadness of what populism has brought um, to the U.S. And, um, and it is going to be a struggle to reset this. Um, it's not going to be easy because AI is taking us in a direction where it will become even more difficult to distinguish reality from unreality. And it needs guidance. Thank you, yes, um, thanks. Do you, this one is a more specific question that I think is on um, many people's minds uh, recently. Do you have any reflections on the human rights impact of the departure of the US and allies from Afghanistan? Well, I, I think my successor and uh, the office, the office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights um, have been very vocal about this. They've seen a degradation, of course, in the respect for human rights in, in a very major way in Afghanistan. Um, and so, I mean, it, if verified to be true, and there's no reason really for us to doubt because usually our sources are plentiful, um, then it is deeply alarming. Um, it doesn't mean that it cannot be reversed. Um, and I think the discussions are ongoing and I, in the next few weeks will intensify uh, as to what in the end we can expect from Afghanistan in the future. But yes, I mean, you know, quite awful. I, I don't think anyone who, who knows the country, and I can't claim to be an expert myself, 
but just from what it is that we read and see, it's quite, um, I mean, it's terrible. Uh, what, how, there's no, way, uh, no other way of putting it, really. You know, but one hopes, one hopes that it's not irreversible. And maybe there is, there is a silver lining here. Okay, a final question uh, for all of us. I think this will be an important one. What is the best way for us uh, participants and for Americans writ large uh, to, and uh, others who live here to understand and educate themselves about nationalism in this decade? Yeah, I, it's it's a very good question. I mean, I, I began my career uh, soon after I finished my military service in Jordan uh, by joining the UN peacekeeping operation in the former Yugoslavia. And uh, that war was very cruel. Um, it was fought on the back of chauvinistic nationalisms, lies, half lies, fabrications, and uh, the consequences were, were uh, brutal for so many people who suffered um, grievously. Uh, so I saw at the start of my career where this can all end up unless you, unless you stop it early. Um, and I think that's informed me. Um, and I think recognition, we, we need two things, I think. Um, we need to always be hopeful because yes, we, we can act very stupidly, but uh, hopefully there are enough people recognizing so many of the danger signs that we have to, we said the antibodies are stirred, which we need to do. And in that sense, we also can't, I mean, I, I was in, at a conference the other day and the topic was rather grim and, um, and the organizer was saying, please, please make it hopeful, make it hopeful. But I also think that's dangerous. Uh, you know, there are a lot of smart people out there and they can't be deceived. We cannot also deceive them into thinking that it's all going to be okay. We hope it's going to be okay. And if we pull together, it'll be okay. But it's not going to you know, be a case where only a handful can do this and everyone else is sitting on their couches. You know, it can't, that can't be done. So we need to navigate that fine line between sort of getting everyone a little bit nervous about it. It's like getting on stage and you know, a little bit nervous but sort of confident that in the end we can do it. And I, I think that's the mindset we need. Thank you. That's a wonderful note to um, bring this session to a close. I'd like to thank you, Zaid, and thanks to Maureen thank as well for uh, joining us this evening. Um, and now I'd like to thank all of our participants for taking part um, and joining us. And I'd like to urge you to check out uh, the Jepson and Alumni Facebook and Instagram accounts and whatever other social media you use and uh, read our alumni website for additional information about upcoming events. Um, I'd like to specifically let you know that the next uh, speaker in this series, uh, Brian Kaplan, will uh, be presenting on October 19th. We hope that will be in person. Uh, Brian's an economist who's written important, um, important works on uh, open borders. I think you'll find that um, a really interesting event. And so with that, uh, again, please join me uh, in thanking Zaid for a wonderful presentation. Uh, this has been terrific. And uh, good, good evening to everyone. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your evening. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you.